Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. failed utopians. Today, Elizabeth Holmes testifies in her own defense in a trial for criminal charges stemming from the collapse of the company she infamously founded, Theranos. The startup claiming to revolutionize the medical industry and at one point valued at $9 billion went down in a blaze of allegations of fraud as one of the worst disasters in Silicon Valley history. What went wrong? As an 18-year-old Stanford freshman, Elizabeth Holmes went on a trip to Asia where she witnessed the SARS outbreak, which gave her inspiration for a new patent idea. Upon returning home, she locked herself in her room and spent five days straight working on a concept for a wearable patch that would test the wearer's blood in real time and administer the appropriate dose of medication based on the results. Elizabeth soon dropped out of Stanford, now at the ripe old age of 19 years old, and launched her own company to develop her new medical device patent. Elizabeth's idea rewarded her with early seed money in the millions of dollars from investors. The fledgling company gained credibility mainly on the reputations of its investors, rather than on Elizabeth's actual product idea, which, spoiler alert, never came to pass. There were red flags even this early on in the story. Elizabeth herself didn't really have any medical knowledge and had only spent a few semesters at Stanford before dropping out. The investors she was able to attract to the idea also didn't have medical expertise. Those who did balked when realizing that Elizabeth likely didn't have the expertise to develop such a breakthrough product and bring it to the market. For other startups hoping to develop breakthrough products that disrupt existing markets, a lack of industry expertise might not be much of a roadblock, but in the fields of biotech, medicine, and chemistry, there are no shortcuts to the years of training required to develop the base level of knowledge needed to make any advancement in the existing technology. With a few notable examples, real medical breakthroughs generally take teams of experts decades of research to accomplish. Obviously, this would eventually prove to be the death knell for Theranos. But back in 2003, optimistic investors continued to pile on to the medical miracle dream of Theranos. Having secured $6 million of funding in the first year, Elizabeth changed course. Her patch idea may have been ingenious had it worked, but it didn't appear to be viable. The next iteration of Elizabeth's invention was a small machine that would read blood samples from just a single finger prick of blood taken by patients at home. When the small cartridge that collected the sample of blood was placed into the machine, it would run hundreds of tests from that single sample. 
The machine would then transmit the information from the testing over the internet to a lab, where personnel would interpret the results and send the information back right away. Patients could bypass a trip to the doctor's office and get the results almost immediately with just a quick trip to a Theranos machine at their local pharmacy. They could also avoid the discomfort of a blood draw with a syringe, just pricking their finger instead. And all this at a much lower price tag than traditional lab testing, Theranos promised. This is in contrast, of course, to standard practice, in which the patient travels in person to a doctor's office where blood is drawn with a syringe. Each test requires its own vial of blood, making it impractical to run more than a few tests at a time. Vials of blood are physically shipped to labs where technicians run tests on large machines with specialized functions, performing one test at a time and taking at least a few days to return results to the doctor and then the patient, who then suffers a heart attack when the bill comes. The promise of the new technology was that it would be far easier, cheaper, and faster to screen for early signs of disease. And we know that early detection is life-saving for so many conditions. In her 2014 TED Talk, Elizabeth Holmes earnestly stated, Soon, no one will have to say goodbye too soon. But the multiple medical and technological breakthroughs Theranos would have to achieve to make Elizabeth's dream possible was already daunting. They would have to scale down the components of the massive machines currently performing blood tests and fit them all into a very small machine about the size of a PC. Current machines use a variety of technologies to perform different types of blood tests, and placing those different components in such close proximity in a single device, even if they could be successfully scaled down, would cause those components to interfere with one another due to electrical activity, heat, and light. Some tests require chemical reactions, and others involve beaming light into the sample, just for an example. Even more concerning is that to perform hundreds of tests from just a drop of blood, that blood would have to be diluted in order to increase the volume of blood available, calling into question the accuracy of any tests performed. In other words, Theranos would have had to completely revolutionize the hardware itself to be able to accurately perform the tests currently outside their detection zone in a diluted sample. So already the technology didn't pass the sniff test. But remember what I said about the lack of medical knowledge and expertise among the company's investors? That's bad enough, but the problem was replicated on the company's own board. The board was loaded with high-profile and impressive names like Jim Mad Dog Mattis and Henry Kissinger. While their celebrity and status lent credibility to the company, their actual areas of expertise did not align with the mission or operations of Theranos. This was just one of the many ways in which Elizabeth Holmes skated on high-profile reputations to lend her house of cards credibility. It was the ultimate case of fake it till you make it. But what about the people actually doing the work at Theranos? Elizabeth had recruited not just an impressive amount of investment money, but also an impressive roster of engineers, scientists, and technicians. 
She later even brought on a few Apple employees, thanks to her fascination with the company and its founder, Steve Jobs. Wasn't it at least possible that they could actually make this machine work? Employees at Theranos did make some progress, but nothing like what was being represented by Elizabeth Holmes. And everyone at Theranos reported to Elizabeth, who didn't have the technical or medical knowledge needed to make these kinds of revolutionary breakthroughs on both the blood testing and hardware sides. Around 2006, the company had an initial prototype called the Theranos 1.0, but of course, it wasn't successfully performing blood tests. Elizabeth hired a new team of engineers to develop the next iteration of the technology called the Edison. These engineers were overworked and exhausted due to punishing schedules and a reported company culture of overwork when Elizabeth told the Edison team manager to arrange for their operations to run 24 hours a day. The manager refused to put his overworked team in that untenable position. Elizabeth responded by hiring a second team of engineers and pitting the two against one another. That might sound familiar if you know the backstory of Elizabeth's hero, Apple's Steve Jobs. But it seemed this tactic caused a toxic work environment at Theranos, as the losing team would all be fired. I believe this extreme style of leadership may have been indicative of Elizabeth's desire to get what she wanted at all costs and a recurrent disturbing lack of empathy, which we'll talk about in a moment. This might be a good time to mention that a lot of people see blatant hypocrisy in how Elizabeth Holmes has been treated in comparison to male tech entrepreneurs who have also broken things and presided over catastrophic failures and frauds. These types of stories about male tech entrepreneurs may be framed differently in terms of their drive and determination, as opposed to their lack of empathy for their workers and that dirty word for women, ambition. I do think there's a conversation to be had there, but for now, let's continue with the story of Theranos. Here's where things start getting really bad. With the new Edison machines to prove, Elizabeth struck a deal with the drug company Pfizer to begin running tests on cancer patients in a pilot program, even though she knew that her technology didn't work. This is a huge problem because for cancer patients, blood work would be used to help determine courses of treatment and whether to increase or decrease medication. Getting these things wrong could result in negative outcomes for the patient, up to and including death. That's what I was saying about these recurring instances of an alarming lack of empathy from Elizabeth, who would knowingly run medical testing for cancer patients knowing that the results would not be accurate. Maybe Elizabeth's actions can be explained by her psychological profile, but how on earth did Elizabeth get Pfizer on board when Theranos didn't even have anything resembling a working prototype. In short, Elizabeth had been lying to everyone about how well the product worked. One of the biggest mysteries threading through this entire shit show, in my opinion, is just how well Elizabeth Holmes was able to control and manipulate people and situations. She must have had a certain charisma that many people who become superstar CEOs seem to share. Not to mention many of the other types of leaders we sometimes discuss on this podcast. 
Elizabeth came to be known for her personal affectations, such as dressing in black turtlenecks in imitation of her hero, Steve Jobs, who she was notably obsessed with. She was also known for speaking in a low baritone voice, which was also an affectation. In my opinion, this false voice sounds very odd, and I've heard a couple of people who met her in person also describe it as rather strange and unsettling, since it was so obviously a put-on. Like, if I suddenly started narrating my entire podcast this way. Although it's probably worth asking ourselves why a female tech entrepreneur might feel the need to mimic masculine qualities in order to be taken seriously. From time to time, Elizabeth reportedly forgot to use her false voice. But that's what I mean about the mystery. In spite of her seemingly very off-putting affectations, she was able to hold sway over her company, its board, and many powerful and influential people, not to mention the media and the public, apparently with her force of personality. For example, at one point in time, the company's board had determined they needed to fire Elizabeth. After two hours in the boardroom, where they were supposed to be telling Elizabeth she was out of the company, she convinced them to change their minds and she remained on as CEO of Theranos. Of course, not everyone was taken in by Elizabeth's overconfident bluster and outright lies about Theranos. The company's chief financial officer did eventually get on to Elizabeth's lies about how the company was doing and confronted her about it. She fired him and never refilled the position. Imagine a company worth $9 billion without a chief financial officer. From that time on, the company's financials were essentially just made-up numbers to suit Elizabeth's narrative. Later, an employee from the sales department realized that financial projections were based on dishonest information and brought that information to the company's board. That was the incident that resulted in Elizabeth's near firing, but she somehow turned the boat around and regained the board's trust in her. Elizabeth's 2003 travels to Asia as a freshman at Stanford had landed her more than a clever idea for a new medical device patent. On another trip to China around the same time, she had met Ramesh Sunny Balwani, a Pakistani immigrant who made millions in the dot-com boom of the 1990s. 20 years Elizabeth Sr. and apparently a rich and successful self-made entrepreneur, Sunny was everything Elizabeth wanted to be. By 2009, Sunny and Elizabeth were dating and Sunny was the second in command at Theranos, chief operating officer. While Sunny did appear to be a successful entrepreneur, he also didn't have medical expertise, which you would think might be a useful asset in Elizabeth's right-hand man. The romantic relationship between Elizabeth and Sonny has become a major topic in Elizabeth Holmes' trial, which is ongoing. Elizabeth claimed in court that he was abusive toward her and controlled her actions in regard to running Theranos. Due to the court case, many private text messages between Elizabeth and Sonny have been made public. Here's one example of the exchanges between the two. Elizabeth to Sonny You are the breeze in desert for me, my water and ocean. Sonny's reply, okay. (sighs) Now, ladies, 
if you've ever dated an inconsiderate asshole, and I'm guessing you probably have, this might seem like par for the course. I'm not a relationship expert, but I predict if we were to ask a therapist, they might not consider this as an indicator of a healthy, loving relationship. But even with the text messages between the couple to speculate about, we really can't know what went on in their relationship behind closed doors. It seems Sonny and Elizabeth had at least one big thing in common. They were both prone to telling self-aggrandizing fibs. Sonny famously boasted that he'd previously worked at Microsoft and written over one million lines of code during his time there. This was ridiculed by those in the industry who say that the average developer at Microsoft would probably only write about a thousand lines of code per year. He also developed a reputation at Theranos for being merciless toward employees, and together he and Elizabeth made a habit of firing everyone who raised concerns about anything within the company, creating an atmosphere of fear among employees who were afraid to speak up about all of the problems within the company. Employees were also forced to sign non-disclosure agreements, both when being hired and upon leaving the company. Theranos had the money and vindictiveness to go after anybody they wanted with expensive lawyers, so for a while, that worked pretty well at keeping people quiet. By 2010, investment money was flooding into Silicon Valley, and the likes of Facebook, Uber, and other tech startups were media darlings. And then there was Elizabeth, the youngest ever self-made billionaire, and that rarest of unicorns, a female tech CEO. By this time, it wasn't really even about the medical breakthrough so much. It was about the story of Elizabeth. And once the mainstream media had the ball rolling, it was a juggernaut that would be hard to stop. After all, with all the credibility coming from the company's board members and the media, who would ever think it could be just a $9 billion fraud? Theranos struck deals with Walgreens and Safeway for wellness centers in their pharmacies where patients could access the Theranos machines. One of the ways they convinced their new partners to make a deal was by presenting a document showing that Pfizer had independently verified the technology. It later came out in court that this document was falsified. It was, in fact, a document Theranos had previously provided to Pfizer that the company had deemed to be not credible. Theranos employees had essentially recreated that document, slapped a Pfizer logo onto it, and began claiming that Pfizer had cleared their technology. They called this report Pfizer Theranos System Validation Final Report. In fact, a Pfizer scientist testified in court last month that after investigating Theranos in 2008, the company had concluded that the documentation provided was not believable and that the company was not worth investing in. The scientist stated that during a call with Holmes, he told her that, quote, Theranos has provided non-informative, tangential, deflective, or evasive answers to a written set of technical due diligence questions. By early 2009, Pfizer had severed its ties to Theranos after paying what it owed to the company as part of an exploratory deal that was worth $900,000. I'm not sure what all that deal included, but I would assume that must have been the origins of the unfortunate trial with cancer patients that I mentioned earlier. In short, 
Theranos used a fraudulent document that it falsely claimed was generated by Pfizer to secure enormous deals with companies like Walgreens, who were eager to beat out the competition by signing onto a deal with the red-hot new company. Theranos also told Walgreens that its machines could perform almost 200 different blood tests. The reality was that only about half of those tests were even theoretically possible based on the progress of the Edison machines. Now that Theranos had massive contracts worth hundreds of millions of dollars to follow through on, and there would be consequences if they didn't deliver the machines as promised, Elizabeth was in a real bind as they did not have working technology as she had represented. She had Theranos engineers begin work on the third iteration of the machine, the Minilab. Elizabeth and Sonny pushed Theranos employees harder than ever and ruled their work lives with an iron fist, firing any employees who raised concerns. Because Theranos was now overdue on their contract to provide machines to Walgreens and Safeway, they had to start producing some kind of results to keep the deals from falling through. They accomplished this by beginning to accept a limited amount of tests from Safeway employees. But instead of running the samples on Theranos machines, the tests were run using third-party conventional testing devices. Elizabeth lied and said that the samples had been tested using Theranos technology. Theranos employees would later testify in court that Elizabeth Holmes was aware that the Theranos machines were not capable of performing the tests. In 2014, Elizabeth had told Forbes reporter Roger Parloff, who wrote a cover story that kicked off a massive media storm about Elizabeth, that the Theranos machines could perform more than 1,000 different blood tests. In reality, a former lab associate testified in Holmes's trial that the machines could only run 12 tests, and even then only one type of test for one patient at a time. Elizabeth also gave Roger Parloff more of those false documents that Theranos had produced and placed the logos of reputable pharmaceutical companies on. At the time, the journalist didn't have any reason to doubt the veracity of the documents. But the next year, he was attending a Theranos demonstration, and he noticed that the company had set up two different machines, one to run an Ebola test and the other to run a potassium test. He thought this was odd given that a single machine was supposed to be able to run a thousand different tests. Later that same year, journalist John Kerry Rue at the Wall Street Journal published an explosive expose after investigating Theranos and working with whistleblowers. And now for that one little word that finally brought Theranos down. Spite. An old Holmes family friend, Richard Fuiz, who had been angered years earlier when Elizabeth didn't consult him for help, with her startup, despite his actual expertise in the medical field, developed what he privately called the Theranos Killer, which was a patent for transmitting blood testing information from machines to doctors. He took Theranos to court to fight over their conflicting patent technology, seemingly just to mess with Elizabeth. Ian Gibbons, the chemistry lead at Theranos, had been called to testify in that case in 2013. Afraid that his testimony would expose the house of cards that was Theranos, 
and fearing for his job prospects as a 67-year-old if he were fired, he tragically took his own life by overdose just two days before he was set to testify. In another stunning example of lacking empathy, Elizabeth Holmes barely acknowledged his death, even though he had been the chemistry lead at the company since 2005. She didn't return his widow's phone call, only told a few people at Theranos of his death, and briefly mentioned holding a memorial for Ian Gibbons, which she never followed through on. Which brings us back around to Richard Fuiz, that spiteful Holmes family friend who had formerly also worked for the CIA and happens to be the author of an extremely strange and alarming WordPress blog that I found by accident. He wasn't about to let bygones be bygones. He banded together with Ian Gibbon's widow and organized for a group of disgruntled current and former Theranos employees and critics to blow the whistle about Theranos to John Carreyrou at the Wall Street Journal. After the investigation was published in the Wall Street Journal, Roger Parloff from Forbes went back to Elizabeth Holmes to ask for clarification on her statements from his 2014 article. And this time, she told him that the number of tests the machine could run was 50, 60, or 70, and that she could get back to him with the actual number. Aside from the obvious that 50 to 70 tests is a far cry from over 1,000 as she initially claimed, and that the reality was that the machine could only perform a dozen or so tests, as the CEO of a biotech company wouldn't it be more or less insane to essentially say that you don't know how many tests your one and only product could perform and that you'd have to check? By this time, the cat was out of the bag, but Elizabeth doubled down and continued with her outrageous lies even in the face of exposure. That might sound crazy, but on the other hand, she had gotten away with it for years. She continued to paddle furiously, carrying on with falsifying tests by using existing third-party lab machines to test samples and pretending that the results had been obtained with Theranos mini-lab machines. Theranos even set up a completely fake lab for a visit from then-Vice President Joe Biden, just for window dressing. But after surprise visits from government regulators in response to the Wall Street Journal's reporting, it was finally officially determined that Theranos mini-lab machines could only produce results for 12 tests and that those results were wildly inaccurate. A criminal investigation and a probe by the SEC were launched and investors began suing the company for hundreds of millions of dollars. Almost a million patient test results were voided and a few patients initiated lawsuits against Theranos. With Theranos in a tailspin, Elizabeth fired Sonny and ended their relationship. Ultimately, Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani were each charged with 10 counts of wire fraud. Theranos was dissolved in 2018. As of this recording, the trial of Elizabeth Holmes is underway. After 11 weeks of the prosecution calling witnesses, the defense has begun to present its case, and as of today, November 23, 2021, Elizabeth Holmes herself is taking the stand for the third time in her own defense. If you were curious, she does appear to be using her false voice as she testifies. 
It's crucial that she appears credible and believable to the jury because her defense revolves around convincing the jurors that she believed everything she said about Theranos and that she was not, in fact, knowingly defrauding investors, regulators, clients, and patients. Now 37 years old, married to Evans Hotel Group heir William Evans and the mother of a three-month-old child, Elizabeth could face up to 20 years in prison if convicted. Legal observers say that being a new mother could potentially play a role not only in the outcome of the trial, but potentially in sentencing. Sunny Balwani will be tried in a separate trial next year and faces the same prospect of 20 years in prison. Unfortunately for patients, the medical miracle promised by Theranos will have to wait. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at Failed Utopia Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.